Hebrews chapter number 12, and we're going to look also at a passage in 1 Peter. Uh, but we're going to begin with these first four verses of Hebrews 12, and then we're going to come back to it after we've laid some groundwork for uh, the introduction this morning. While you're finding your place there, I want to encourage you to uh, be here tonight. We're going to be continuing our series through 1 Timothy uh, in chapter 5 in particular. A lot of times we, uh, we focus on a lengthy passage there, a lengthy section of that chapter that deals with widows and widows indeed and how uh, they are to be entreated within the church. But what's missed in the context of that chapter is it's really about all of our interpersonal church relationships. Uh, how should the older men and women be treated? How should younger men and women be treated? How should the widows be cared for? How should the pastor be tre treated and cared for? Um, all of those things are all encompassed in there. Sometimes more verses are given to describe what, real, what a real biblical widow in that, that position in life is, that we neglect the other parts of that. So tonight we just want to put those things together so that we know uh, and are reminded of how a church family should function. How we, should, how we should look at one another, how we should treat one another, interact with one another. We're all just human, we're all just flesh, we're all susceptible to losing our temper or saying something that's unkind or having a bad day, we're all capable. Uh, and so, but what is God's expectation for his church and what governs that, what principles guide that? And so we're gonna be covering all of that in the service at 6.30 this evening. And so if you're not accustomed to coming, I wanna challenge you to come. Uh, and so I don't think that if you've been in church a long time, you probably won't hear anything that's brand new, but you might hear a little different perspective on some things uh, that might help make some things a little more clear. And so this morning in Hebrews chapter number 12, and again, this is a very familiar passage to most of you. Uh, I'll call your attention to the first word of verse number one, wherefore. And so when we talk about wherefore, what we're talking about here is the previous chapter in this case. Sometimes it might be talking about a verse or two. Sometimes it might be talking about multiple chapters uh, or something that's even in a different passage. Uh, but in this particular case, it's a direct reference back to the preceding chapter. Now, if you've been in church any time at all, you're aware that Hebrews chapter 11 is widely regarded as the hall of fame of faith. And so it is the, it is the chapter of those who live lives of faith in the word of God. Uh, and by the way, almost all of these people are very fallible. In other words, you don't have to know their story well to know that they had some sin problems in their life. But yet God looks at them and Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit recorded them in the scripture as a testimony of people of faith and how God used their life in spite of their sin, which is very encouraging to me because uh, if I look at my life honestly, I wonder how God could ever use me. But if I look at the fact that God used these people uh, that he also could potentially, if I would live in faith, be used by him. Uh, and so that's encouraging to me. And so with that thought in mind, and, and you look and we're talking about people like Abraham, uh, who, who is known for his faith. Jacob is very easy to see his flaws. Uh, we see Moses, we're aware of his. We see Joseph, who's a little bit more difficult to find his, but he had them. Uh, we see... Uh, others that are listed, Joshua, Rahab, the harlot, is listed here as a person of great faith. And then, and this is particularly not just interesting, but encouraging to me. When you get into the last verses of chapter 11, you get a long list of people and how they died, but not a list of names of who they were. 
And the Bible very clearly says there that the world was not worthy of their faith and how God used it in, the, in our lives. And so if those who are even unnamed, that the world is unworthy of them, just think what God could do with our lives if we would live by faith. Uh, and so with that in mind, wherefore? Because of all of these, the faith of all of these people. Wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And I want to speak this morning on the thought, consider Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your powerful word. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for shedding your blood for us on Calvary's cross. Thank you that we can know without any doubt this morning that you're our Savior and that we are on our way to heaven. And thank you that we don't have to live a defeated life, but we can live a life that's victorious. However, you tell us here that the race is long. It's not a sprint. It's something that must be endured. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be a people that are willing to allow you to build our endurance that we might finish well the race that you've given us to run. May we receive the encouragement of those that you've put in the grandstand to cheer us along life's road. And may we follow your example in all things as we live for you and serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. So the scripture here points out to us that Jesus is our example in everything. You know, so often we, we make people our example. And when we make people our example, we set ourselves up for failure. Now, I think that Christians, older Christians ought to be a good example. I think that we do a disservice to what God's trying to accomplish when we are so busy tearing down uh, older Christians, spiritual leaders, that we, we force younger Christians to find all of their heroes within the world. Um, and so, you know, I, I get that we shouldn't lift man up too high. But I also understand that I would rather have had my children having men that they looked up to that love God and serve God faithfully with their lives than having them uh, spend their whole life looking up to nothing other than celebrities and sports figures. Uh, and so we see here as, as he lays before us, wherefore seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. So if you want to picture a mental image of of what the context does here. It's like, uh, it, it's, it's, a, it's a great sporting event. It's like an Olympic race. I would say that if I had to pick the race that it is, that it would either be the longest marathon or, or, or the marathon or the longest hurdle race. And so, uh, or better yet, I realize this isn't an Olympic event, at least I don't think it is, a, a, an actual marathon filled with hurdles. And so that's, the, that's life, okay? So that's what life is. And so if we want that vision, then picture the grandstands filled with all of those who are listed here in chapter 11. 
those like them. They're the cheering section. That's, that's the picture that I believe the Apostle Paul writes here. Now I understand you can disagree that Paul's not the writer of Hebrews if you would like to, but I personally believe that he is. Uh, and so, wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about, we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. So we're to run the race with patience, meaning that I have to understand that the race is not short and the race is not easy. It's, it's a difficult race. I have to realize that I need to shed anything in my life that would hinder me from effectively running that race. And so the problem with the sin that so easily besets us is that the sin that so easily besets us tends to be the sin that we really love. The sin that we don't want to let go of. The sin that we want to cling to. So, Pastor, what Christian wants to cling to sin? Every Christian. We've all got those things in our life that we know are unhealthy for us spiritually, but we enjoy them or we're so accustomed to them or it's kind of a default position to where when we kind of get loose, when we lose focus, it's what we just kind of automatically drift back into. Uh, those are the sins that so easily beset us. Now, if you're training for a race, wearing some weight is, is, uh, along your course is uh, healthy to help you build endurance. And I'm not saying this morning that the weight of sin is healthy for us in the Christian life. But I will say that if I overcome that sin, that it builds endurance in my Christian life. So laying aside indicates an intentional, willful act of me as a believer putting this aside because I realize that it's hurting my cause. Now, that puts what's called sin here in a different category of just something that's explicitly right or something that's explicitly wrong. If you want to look at a broader context of, uh, of what sin could be in our lives as God's people, especially if you've been saved for a long time and you've been dedicated to growing and becoming more like Christ, uh, that the Bible says that to him that knoweth to do good and to doeth it not is sin. So rather than looking at something and saying, well, this is right and this is wrong and the Bible's clear about and this is not clear about that, the real question for the Christian that wants to please God should be, what best helps me to please my Savior? And if I am shown and God and the Holy Spirit leads me to say, this is more pleasing to God, for me to choose to do something that's less pleasing to God, for me becomes sin. Because to him that knoweth to do good, to him it is sin. And so he says, lay aside the sin that so easily besets you. If there's something in my life that is hindering my testimony, that's hindering uh, the message that I preach, if there's something in my life that's hindering uh, my ability to commune and fellowship with God, even though it may not be on a checklist of sins in the Christian world, it's sin to me. And if I would win the race, if I would run the race effectively, if I would run the race that pleases God, uh, and cross my finish line with a father in heaven that's pleased with the life that I've lived, then I must, by my own volition, say, these things are hindering me, I'm laying them aside. And so, again, the picture of this great race, lay aside every weight and the sin which is so easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. You know what the greatest hindrances to our lives spiritually is that things don't happen on our timetable, they happen on God's. 
We want, we don't want, we'll run. Oh yeah, sign me up. I'm in. But we don't run patiently. We enter a marathon and we run a sprint. And we're not satisfied when God doesn't show up and, and accommodate what our expectations are. Well, let me just remind us this morning that God doesn't exist to, to meet our expectations. We exist to meet His. And so when we consider what God has laid out for us, He just puts out here that we're to run with patience. In other words, we're running to please God, not to finish first. Now, I'm a very competitive person. And when there's no one to compete with, I compete with myself. I'm just on a rate. Hey, take it easy over there, lady. Uh, and so, uh, and so uh, you know, it, it's, it's just something. I mean, I'm, I'm the kind of dad that never let my kids win. Uh, when they won, they won because they earned it. Uh, and so uh, we're, I'm the kind of a person that if you go and you play something with me, I'm going to beat you and I'm going to beat you as badly as I possibly can. Uh, it's, a, it's a dog eat dog world out there. Uh, I play to win. If I'm not playing to win, it's, it's, what's the point in playing the game if you're not going to play to win? Well, you just play for fun. It's not fun to lose. I'm sorry. Uh, it's just there's no fun in losing. Uh, and so, uh, but there's a lot to be said for that person that can go out and run the race and finish well. Uh, I saw um, a, a video recently uh, of an intellectually challenged young man who was running a race and fell and got up and he finished last, but he finished. Um, kudos to him. Praise God for that spirit that's willing to get up and continue to run. And that's the way every Christian should view their life. Yeah. We're, not, we're not in a competition with one another. We're not in a competition with other churches. We're, we're in a competition with ourselves. The one person that I need to beat every day is me. The one sinful person that I need to overcome in my life every day is the one that I look at in the mirror every morning. And so when we talk about what God's laying out here, he's saying, listen, I have put in the grandstands to cheer you on. Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and Joseph, they're there. They're saints there that the world is not even worthy for me to reveal their name. They're cheering for you. They finished their race, and you can finish your race. And you can run it, and you can run it well. Did I win? What if I don't win? If you finish the race, if you fulfill the will of God for your life, you won. If we do what God's given us to do, we win. And so he says to us that Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, his race was hard. We know that it was not easy for him to pay our sin debt on Calvary's cross. He was so uh, overwhelmed and stressed by it physically as a man that he sweat drops of great drops of blood as he prayed before any bruise or any blow was ever dealt to him. Uh, and so we, and he prayed to God, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. But if there's not another way, then I'm, uh, your will's done. And so uh, the pressure was so great, the road was so hard that he was looking for an, altern an alternative way. But he knew that there wasn't one as God. And he was willing to pay the price. And the message is that, that message is this, that God of all people, Jesus, knows that life can be hard sometimes. That, that life can be challenging. That people can be disappointing. That we can be a people that often fail. But it says, 
who for the joy that was set before him, that's me and that's you, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. He's sitting right there beside his father. And he's making and preparing a place for us and he's praying for you. So on the one hand, you've got the great saints cheering you on. And on the other hand, you've got Jesus, the great Savior, praying for you and preparing a place for you. How could we live in defeat when we're aware of such things? And we consider here what he says to them as he continues, for consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself. What the word contradiction here means quite simply is just opposition. The, the, uh, the opposition of sinners against him. The very Savior that came to pay our sin debt as he was in the process of paying for our sin, we stood opposed to him. Rather than I'm so glad, Jesus, that you came to pay for my sins so that I don't have to die and go to hell so that I can go to heaven and be with God. No, they opposed him at every turn. He endured that contradiction of sinners. He understands what it's like to run the race and be weary. He says, consider Jesus, consider him who endured such a contradiction of sinners, lest ye be wearied. If I don't keep my focus on Jesus, I'm going to get so weary that I'm going to be unable to continue in the Christian life and I'm going to be lost. I'm just going to turn my back and walk away from everything. If I want to focus on those that have failed, if I want to focus on those that have hurt me, if I want to focus on those that have betrayed me, if I want to focus my existence on those that have let me down, I will grow weary and I will fall. But if I stay focused on him, if I consider Jesus, then I can finish my race. Now, if we look here and we consider what God has told us, and Jesus told us in John chapter 13 and verse 15, For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done unto you. Now he's in the upper chamber, he's, he's serving the disciples, he's washing their feet, he's laying out, but his message is clear. I am setting for you an example of how you are to, to, to labor and to serve uh, my people and one another. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 21, he says, For hereunto were ye called, for this reason or for this purpose are ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow in his steps. So my example is that I should follow the steps of Christ. Does that mean that I need to go out and pick up a cross and walk up Calvary's hill? Not actually, no, but I am to leave my body a living sacrifice to live for his honor and glory. He continues in 1 Peter chapter, chapter 2 and verse 22, Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sin, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. And so what is Peter laying out here? And I'm just going to lay down, and what he's showing us is the steps of Christ. Follow his example. Again, verse 21, for hereunto were ye called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. So what are his steps? The verses that we just read in 22 through 25 give us the steps. There are basically eight of them. 
depending on how you want to break it down. And so this isn't the main body of the message. This is the introduction this morning. Uh, but what are the steps that we're to follow? Number one, he was sinless. Now, I hate to break it to you this morning, but, but none of us will ever be sinless. It's too late for that. We were already sinners. We were born in sin. And so we, we can't be sinless, but we, sh we should be striving to be sinless from this point forward. And every time I sin, I should be seeking forgiveness from God and then starting out on the next attempt at living a sinless life. It should be a constant thing in my life. I don't want anything between me and God. I don't want any sin. I don't want any bad thought. I don't want any uh, wicked thing. I don't want any anger. I don't want any bitterness. I don't want any, uh, uh, any uh, things that are, that are hindering my walk with God, overwhelming my spirit. I want to take all of those things and be forgiven so that I can begin anew to walk clean and pure before God. He was sinless. He was honest. So Pastor, if he was sinless, that goes without saying. Well, I put that in there because it's listed primary, It's listed specifically in the text. But I think that this is something that we as Christians, especially newer Christians, have a real problem with. We have a problem with integrity. We have a problem with being honest. We, we give information to control the response rather than just laying out the whole truth. For example... I can sit down with couples that are having troubles in marriage. And some couples I can talk to the wife and I can talk to the husband and I can believe that they're giving me an honest assessment of what's going on and where they are and then I can bring them together and, uh, and we can work on some things. There are other couples that I deal with that I can't, I, I can do that, but it's really a waste of time. I have to get them both in the same room at the same time so that they can call each other out because neither one of them are honest enough. They're deceptive in the information that they give, everything, and we all tend to do this. So we skew information to make ourselves look better rather than to honestly assess where we are and what our problems are. Now I'm, I'm, I'm just giving as an example this morning that we as God's people who believe ourselves to be honest often are not. We're deceived. We're deceived by ourselves. We're deceived by the world and we deceive those that are trying to help us. Listen, I want to tell you this. If you're someone, when you come, when you go to anybody for advice or counsel, the advice and counsel that they give you is only as good as the information that you give them to give the advice by. If you only give me half of the information, I'm not going to give you very good advice. And then you're going to be mad at me because things are going to fall apart down the road. But I only had half the information to work with. Hey, doc, I think I've got some lung issues. You can x-ray the right lung, but you can't look at the left one. Well, the cancer was in the left one. The information's incomplete. It can't be discerned correctly. What I'm saying is, is that we must be honest. I need to be honest primarily and first of all with God when I'm allowing him to deal with my sin. Try me and see if there be any wicked way in me. In other words, what I'm saying is, God, I think that I've confessed all my sin, but in case I miss something, show me what it is so that I can make it right with you. I want to be honest with God. I'm not excusing. I'm not justifying. Uh, I'm not laying it. To some, I'm not blame shifting it to someone else. Listen, we are world class blame shifters in the 2000s and beyonds. We were before, but we've just gotten really good at it. If I if I can lay the blame somewhere else, I'm not responsible. If I have an excuse, then I, that that's my answer. I don't have to have a real answer. 
because I have an excuse. There will be no excuses when we stand before God. We will stand before God without excuse. And so honesty is a key to the Christian life. Uh, Jesus was honest, brutally honest at times. I mean, we always think, and, and people today tend to think of Jesus as just always being kind and compassionate and uh, never saying anything that was, that was <clears throat> excuse me, un unkind or hurtful uh, to anyone. But I, I, I'm going to tell you, when, when he talked to uh, someone that was in, in deep, vile sin, he was, if they were repentant, he was very vile and compassionate. He forgave them, he healed them, and he would tell them, go and sin no more. Sometimes he would tell them to go and offer the appropriate sacrifice in their religious system of the day. He, he would do uh, those things. But when it comes to those that rejected, that blasphemed, that stood against him, he called them a generation of vipers. He said, you are of your father, the devil. He called them the, the children of Satan. I mean, he just blatantly put it out there. And, he, and I'm not saying that he did it in a, uh, in a, in a way that was just uh, hurtful. It was just matter of fact. You, you call me this, but you're of your father, the devil. And sometimes we think that if we speak the truth, because the, the truth is unpleasant, that we're not being Christ-like. I would argue that the only way to be Christ-like is to speak the truth, even when the truth is unpleasant. I can't confront problems and sin in my life if I'm not willing to honestly assess and, and view it. He was honest. Thirdly, it says that he did not counterattack when he was attacked. Oh, don't we like to counterattack? I mean, that's, uh, that's who we are. We want our pound of flesh. The next thing goes with it. He, he gave his battle over to God, the righteous judge. He did not vow revenge. So he didn't counterattack when he was attacked. He suffered without vowing revenge. I remember at one point in, in high school, I think it was in my senior year, and we were... Um, we were our basketball team in the state, and it was a time when it, it was a lot of bigger associations than they are now, uh, and, and we were in the top five teams in the state, and we had a game against our arch rival, uh, and, and they hated us and Christian love, of course, and we hated them and Christian love right back, uh, and so, but uh, we went to their gym and we had a big lead and we blew it and we lost the game by a couple of points. And, uh, and I mean, we just sulked and were mad at ourselves and angry all the way home. And then we had to play them again in a couple of weeks. And all you heard from 16, 17, 18 year old boys was, we have a score to settle. You know, we, we are, we, we've got unfinished business. And so we took the court all charged up, all fired up, and we played so well that by halftime we were down by 20 again. <laughs> and then we got our act together and got our focus and we came back and won the game. We wanted revenge. It's all you heard about. And it, it, it says, especially the seniors on the team. I mean, we were just like, hey, we're not gonna let this stand. We gotta set this right. We want revenge. That's human nature. And it's not absent from the Christian church. Somebody wrongs us, the first thing that we want is to get even. Somebody says something hurtful, the, same, the first thing we want to do is say something hurtful back. We want to respond. We, we, want, we want eye for eye. 
tooth for tooth. Give us that old law that we reject and every other, and every other thing in the New Testament we reject it. But when it's about getting revenge, we love it, right? What he's saying here is that Jesus, Jesus didn't counterattack. Jesus did not vow revenge. Jesus turned it over to God, the righteous judge. Then he bore our sins. He took our sins and he bore them upon himself. And after he had borne our sins, he healed us from the effects of our sins. And after he had healed us from the effects of our sins, he brought us home. I love that verse that closes out 1 Peter chapter 2. When it says, for ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and the bishop of your souls. If we're lost, he's searching for us. If we are stray, he comes looking for us. If we, uh, if we reject him, uh, we, he comes to find us. Uh, and so he lays all that out there. Now it says to them that are called. So who are we talking about here in 1 Peter when we talk about the call? We're talking about that all of us are called to live godly. We are all called to live a godly life. We are all called to live with integrity. We are all called to be a good spouse, to be a good parent, to be a good child, to be a good Christian, to be a good parent or grandparent. Uh, we are all called to be good employees at our places of work and to uh, give a good representation of the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that we conduct ourselves and the way that we're in our, in our work habits and our attitude and our uh, submission to the authority of the places that we work and to government officials and to uh, leaders that God puts in our life. All of that is what he's referring to. And he's saying, I understand that sometimes it's hard. I understand that sometimes that means you'll be treated unfairly and unjustly. I understand that sometimes... That means that you're going to be attacked. But follow his example. Hey, listen, whenever I'm attacked, I don't want to consider the, uh, I don't want to consider the act or the testimony of that person uh, that God destroyed and judged for it. I want to consider the testimony of Jesus. I want to consider the, per, the, the testimony of that person that's miserable in their Christian life. I want to consider the, the testimony of what Jesus did for me. That's the point of what he's saying here. Saying, listen, you're in a race and the race is hard and the race is long. And I've given you some cheering section up here, some fans to cheer you on. And consider Jesus. He's the example of how to do this and how to endure this and how to be successful in this. And he will lead you through it. He tells us, hey, listen, uh, four things here in this, in, in Hebrews chapter Chapter 12, in the first couple of verses, you have a cheer section. Lay aside the weight that besets you. Lay aside that besetting sin. Lay aside that bitterness. Lay aside that anger. Lay aside that malice. Lay aside that wounded spirit. Lay aside uh, that angry spirit. Lay it aside and run with patience. Run realizing that the race is long and that it's difficult and that it requires endurance and don't think that because you had one good lap that the race is won. <laughs> Keep pressing. Amen. Run with patience. How do I do that? I'm exhausted. I'm tired. My legs are gone. Keep your eyes on Jesus Amen. because he's the author and finisher of our faith. When I was in when I was in the military, I remember a particular day. There are a lot of things in my life that I don't remember at all, and there's some things that I just remember very vividly. Things that are embarrassing, I tend to remember very vividly. And so we got this brand new staff sergeant uh, that was brought up to our company. 
And so we are a company of Marines on a naval facility, uh, and there's a lot of kind of banter and competition just naturally between the service branches. It's actually a CB base, so uh, this staff sergeant comes up, and he wants to impress the commanding officer of our company, and he wants to impress the XO, and he, he, he just is that kind of a guy. Uh, and so he decides one day that he's going to take all of us that work in the headquarters part of the company up in the office, and he's going to take us all out, and we're going to do about a five-mile run with 30-pound sandbag in the back. And so whenever we did stuff like that, we always finished with the hardest part and the most steep uphill part at the very end. So we go and we take our little trot around and do our miles and we come back and we're all breathing heavy by the time we get to the top of the hill. And then we uh, kind of jog through uh, the timber line to the helicopter hangars where, uh, where they parked the president's helicopters whenever he was on, on the facility. And so we're, we go in there. Well, here's about half of the Seabees that are on the base. Brother Dick, you'll love this. He's an old Navy man. And so uh, they're there doing their company PT. And so they're, they're taking great pleasure at the fact that we're breathing heavy when we walk in the building. And across the building, and we had to walk right along the edge of them to get there, there's this rope tied to the ceiling that was probably about 30 feet or so. And so this staff sergeant decides, hey, we're going to climb this rope with the packs. And so Marines being the way that Marines are, the officers go first. And he had talked the, com the company executive officer to come with us on this little adventure. And so if you watch the news during all the hurricanes last year, the head of FEMA, Pete Gaynor, uh, the, the head of that agency at the time, he was our executive officer. So here's Captain Gaynor, who was a great officer. He was the prior enlisted, and they usually make the best officers because they understand both sides of the coin better. Uh, and so he's a great officer. He's not been there real long. Uh, he's trying to set a good tone with, the, with, the, with all the sailors on the base and with his Marines. And so he leads the way. And I don't know. And, and, and Brother, Brother Gaynor, uh, Captain Gaynor was, uh, was a tall man. He was a pretty thin guy. Uh, and how he got up that rope with that pack, I'll never know. You run five miles with a 30-pound pack strapped across your shoulders and then climb a 30-foot rope with it on your back. Still, that's a challenge for even somebody that's in really great shape. And so, and I'm just going to tell you a little secret for you people that are tall, uh, that if you're doing pull-ups or push-ups, it's a lot more challenging because you've got a lot further to pull and a lot farther to push. And so he's at this rope and he, he struggles. And I mean, his, his feet would go completely sideways and lift that rope up off the floor. And somehow he got up there, tapped the rafter and came back down the rope. And he was furious when he hit the floor. And so he hands the rope to the staff sergeant. Staff sergeant doesn't make it about 10 or 15 feet off the floor. Can't go any farther. He's spent. And the Navy's snickering. I can just see Brother Dick over there laughing at us right now. Uh, they are taking great pleasure at our embarrassment. And so finally, Captain Gaynor just looks and tells everybody to drop their packs. And even still, only about half of the guys that were there could make it up the rope. I was never a great rope climber, but God helped me that day to get to the rope, which was a good thing because I was basically the liaison between our company and the sailors. I had to deal with them. I had to see them all day, every day. There was no hiding in our barracks or out on the perimeter. It was not a fun day. It was a difficult day. It was a challenging day. It was a day that could have, and for some did, in disastrously. He got in a lot of trouble. 
thankfully. But we had to keep our eyes on the prize. We had to stay focused on what we were trying to do. You get, even in a taxing situation like that, you've got to stay focused on what you're trying to accomplish. You can't pay attention to who's laughing at you. You can't pay attention to who's mocking you, even if they're justified in doing so. You just have to stay focused on what you're doing. And part of the problem that we have in the Christian life is we get too concerned about the mocking of the world. We get too concerned about trying to please the world. We get too concerned about uh, trying to blend in. We get too concerned about all of the wrong things rather than just keeping our eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. He is the author and the finisher of our faith. Having said that this morning, consider first of all that whenever I'm weary, I should consider Jesus. What do I do, Pastor? I'm just exhausted. I'm mentally exhausted. I'm emotionally exhausted. I'm physically exhausted. I'm spiritually exhausted. How can I survive one more day? At least if I let the spiritual side of things go, the rest of it's got some more life to breathe. Actually, the opposite is true. If you want to survive when you're weary, consider Jesus. Jesus knew what it was like to be weary. Jesus sometimes worked intending to take breaks and couldn't because the crowd was pressing so hard against him. Sometimes he tried to step away and he couldn't because the need was too great. Jesus knew what it was like to be taken into the wilderness and led there by the Holy Spirit of God to be tempted by Satan. What I'm saying is that when we're weary, he gave us an example. Listen, every Christian, every person will get weary. It's unreasonable to expect that you can live for decades in the Christian life and never grow weary. How do I sustain that? How do I get through that? Stay focused on him. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 9. In the context of Galatians 6 is that if, if, if we reap what we sow. And so the context of this verse is in sowing and reaping. If I sow to the flesh, all of the flesh reap corruption. If I sow to the spirit, I'll, sow, I'll, I'll reap life everlasting. And so he comes and he says, but be not weary in well-doing. For in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Reaping comes at the end. Reaping comes when the race is done. We, we grow weary, but we cannot be weary in doing well. Listen, I, I, it, it's a good thing for me to grow weary of my sin. It's a good thing for me to grow weary of my bad spirit, of my poor attitude, if my closed off heart, of my mocking attitude toward uh, the, the, the things of God. It, 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 that's a good thing for me to get weary of, but it's a bad thing for me to be weary in doing well. Be not weary in well-doing. Be not weary in doing things that please God. Be not weary in living a life that's pleasing to Him, the walking a walk that's pleasing to Him. Be not weary in well-doing. Why? Because Jesus never stopped doing right. He pressed on. How did he do that? Well, Matthew chapter 4 gives us some insight. Whenever the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness and he's tempted after he fasts for 40 days and 40 nights, he is there and uh, Satan comes to him at his weakest physical moment uh, to tempt him and he throws scripture at him. He just perverts the scripture. He distorts and misquotes the scripture. Uh, most of the passages, if not all, from Deuteronomy and Jesus correct, quotes them back to him correctly. And he stands against the attack of Satan with the word of God. The best way for me to stand against the, the, the world and the devil is to stand on the word of God. 
to be led by the Spirit. But sometimes it's going to be hard. Sometimes it's going to be difficult. 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verses 9 and 10, Paul's talking here about, uh, about the thorn in his flesh, that he talked to God three times about him taking it away. He's begging and pleading with God, God, I have this problem that's hindering me. Would you please remove it from me? And God refuses to take it away from him because he says, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and reproaches and necessities and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am I strong. Amen. When I realize that I'm too weak to finish the race and I allow the Holy Spirit of God and the Lord Jesus to carry me across the finish line, I win the victory. But when I try to do it in my own, and I try to do it under my own power, I'm condemned to defeat. Jesus drew strength from God. And what I'm saying is when you're tired and when you're weary, when you're emotionally, spiritually, physically exalted, draw, exhausted, draw strength from Jesus. Draw strength from His Word. Draw strength from that cheering section. Draw strength from your brothers and sisters in Christ. Draw strength from their encouragement. Draw strength uh, from their exhortations. Draw strength from their admonishment. Draw strength from Him. Consider Him when you're weary. Secondly, I would say consider Jesus when you're wandering. All of us are prone to wander. We're just, we're just prone to wander. We sing the song. Prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Uh, here's my heart, Lord, come and seal it. Seal it for the one above. But we, we are prone to drift away from God. Why? Because life is hard. Because life is overwhelming. Because the attacks of the enemy are relentless. Because of the disappointment of my own self is so ever-present. Because those that would we invest in betray us. Because those that we give our hearts to and our lives to turn away. I had a talk with a young pastor uh, just this week that had a meeting with someone that he was heavily invested in that left. He said, how do you deal with that? It's just not easy. There's no easy way around it. People are going to do what they're going to do. What I'm saying this morning is I don't want to be that person. I've been that person before that, that drifted away from God. I don't want to be that person again. And even the Apostle Paul was mindful and, and observant of his own situation. He said, lest I become a castaway. If the Apostle Paul is vulnerable to become a castaway, I'm in real trouble. And when I look and consider, he says, listen, if you're wandering, if you're drifting from God, if you find yourself uh, fi falling uh, far from him, then you need to come to a place uh, where Jesus is. And in Matthew chapter 18 and verses 12 and 13, he gives the story about that one sheep and the, and the flock of a hundred that drifted out, that went out on his own and the shepherd didn't leave it to go out and be devoured by the wolves. He left the 99 and he went to find that sheep. And listen, friend, this morning, if you, maybe, you're, maybe you are physically present, but spiritually you are adrift. Maybe you uh, are uh, a guest and you're just trying to find your way. May I say to you that there is a God in heaven that loves you so much that he will leave and he'll come and seek you out to bring you home. He doesn't just let us go. Sometimes we're determined and we're stubborn and we go anyway. 
But we don't go without God following after us and trying to convince us to return. He always seeks the one who's lost. I'm glad when I was drifting that he came and found me. I'm glad when I was lost that he never gave up on me. I'm glad that when I had turned my back and betrayed him that he came and, and brought me home. And did what was necessary to get my attention. And he always ultimately brings us to safety. And they were returned, 1 Peter 2.25 we read, to the shepherd and the bishop of their souls. He brings us back. Consider Jesus when you're wandering. Consider Jesus when you're weary. I would say thirdly this morning, consider Jesus when you're weeping. I love the story of Lazarus. I love the element of the story that Jesus knew exactly that Lazarus was going to die. That he knew when he got there that Lazarus had died. That he knew that before he left that town that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And yet he still had enough empathy and compassion for Mary and Martha that he wept with them. Rather than just saying, stop crying, everything's going to be okay. Let's just get down to the cemetery and roll that stone away and Lazarus come forth and everything's great. No, he stopped and he wept with them. He is familiar with your grief. He is acquainted with our pain. He is well aware of our suffering. Jesus wept in John eleven thirty five, Even knowing of the glorious outcome, he wept. Listen, there's a lot of times in life when we're going to weep. And we know because of what the Bible tells us that in the end when we stand before God, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, when you stand before him and everything is made new and all tears are wiped away, we know that in the end there's a glorious reunion waiting where everything will be wonderful again. We know it, but it doesn't mean that there's not weeping along the way. I'm glad this morning that I have a Savior that's been touched with a feeling of my infirmity. That knows how to weep with me. That knows when I need someone to just come alongside. And sometimes we don't need someone to tell us it's going to be better. We just need somebody to sit and cry with us for a while. Jesus wept. And he said in John 14, beginning in the early parts of the chapter, and then in verse 16 through 15, 26, and he alludes to this in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4 in the Beatitudes. That if I go away, he says it's expedient for you if I go away. I mean, the last thing that they wanted to hear from Jesus is that I'm going to be crucified and I'm going to be buried and I'm going to raise again and then I'm going to go away. But he says to them, it's expedient for you. It's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I go away, then I'll send another comforter. And he sent the Holy Spirit to lead us, to convict us, to guide us, to convince us of truth, to be uh, actively involved in our lives on a daily basis. Well, he's at the right hand of the Father. He says, if you're weeping this morning, realize that Jesus weeps with you and realize that he sent you a comforter. He sent you one to carry you through. And then lastly this morning, consider Jesus when you're working. All of us should be working for the Lord. All of us have work that we have to do on a regular basis, but all of us should be doing that work to the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of us should be doing things within our local church body that uh, are helping us to serve the Lord.
Listen, he said, be not weary in well-doing. For in due season you shall reap if you faint not. In 1 Corinthians 15, 58, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Your labor is not in vain. Why should I be working? Why should I consider Jesus when I'm working? Because he finished the work that God gave him to do. He finished his course. He finished that redemptive work on Calvary's cross. He finished conquering death and hell when he rose from the grave. He finished what was necessary for him to do in his advent on the earth at this time when he ascended to his father's throne. Consider Jesus when you're working. What is there to consider, Pastor? Consider that what you're doing is not in vain. But Pastor, you don't understand, I invested in this person and I, uh, I poured myself into this person and I, uh, I trusted this person and I uh, longed for them or this, uh, that you don't understand how hurt I was when this, uh, when this pastor did this or when this youth pastor did that or whenever this, uh, this Bible college teacher did this or uh, I found out later that this happened. Listen, the world is full of people that turn their back on God, that sinned and that fell off the scene. Are you focused on them really for life or are we going to focus on Jesus? I'm not going to let the sins of others control how I live my life for the glory of God. I want to be in tune with him. And you say, Pastor, is it even worth it? Listen, there's a lot of days. If you, ever, if you ever really get into trying to love someone and disciple them and help them grow in grace and, and then they drift away, then you'll kind of come to understand uh, what, what the upper levels of ministry life in a local church are like. It's a constant. There's always people that are coming. There's always people that are going. There's always people in between. There are definite cycles. You can see it coming a mile off. Some people will listen to the warning and respond. Some people are determined and they won't. Uh, and your heart breaks in one minute and it weeps and it rejoices in the next. Uh, and it's just a constant up and down and, and way of life. And your heart's hurt for those that, that are gone. And you're, uh, and, you, and you're excited about ones that God is reaching and that, uh, that he's bringing in. And all of that is a part of the Christian life but there are days uh, whenever the hurt is deep where you just kind of look at your uh, at your ministry team or you look at your spouse or your ministry team looks back at you whenever they've been deeply wounded and they say is it really worth it is it worth it yeah it's worth it yeah it's worth it why because it was worth it to Jesus because for the joy that was set before him because Jesus finished the race because he said in first in first Corinthians 15 58 the apostle Paul wrote that our labor is not in vain and be not weary in well-doing our labor is worthwhile as long as it's done in the spirit of God not in the power of our own flesh and then secondly about considering him when we're working consider that our treasures being laid up we're not serving God to gain earthly wealth. We're serving him to bring honor and glory to his name. But in, in that, he gives us treasure. Proverbs 15, 6 says, in the, hand, in the house of the righteous is much treasure. Doesn't mean that there's a lot of gold and silver. Doesn't mean that it's the nicest of furniture and the fanciest of gadgets. It means that there's much blessing of God. That there's much joy that there's much peace, that there's much happiness. There's a lot to be said for a shack where one can lay their head down and sleep in peace. 
as opposed to a mansion where one can't get any rest because of the troubled soul and spirit that they have. In the house of the righteous is much treasure, but in the revenues of the wicked is trouble. Colossians 3.24, he says that we shall receive the reward. In Matthew 5.12, he says, but great is your reward in heaven because you endured. The message of Hebrews chapter 12 is a message of endurance. It's the Christian life is long. And the Christian life sometimes is challenging. Endure. Endure to the end. But don't endure in your own strength. Endure in his. Draw from him. Consider him that endured such a contradiction of sinners. Everything out there is going to fight against you living for God. Everyone out there that's not walking with the Lord is going to challenge your walk with God. They don't care about you. They don't care about your eternal destiny. They don't care about God's blessing in your life. They care about getting what they want. But Jesus cares about blessing you. He cares about loving you. He cares about living through you. He cares about helping you cross the finish line. I think about the picture of the race this morning as we close, and I think about, I've told you how competitive I am. If I'm doing something by myself, I'm still competitive. It's just that I'm competing against myself. If I go for a jog, if I go for a walk, if I do something that's, uh, that I'm keeping track of, I, I have certain days of a week that I, I'm competing against the best time before. Uh, it's, it's, it's time to, to, to challenge. What I'm saying is, it's the goal in the Christian life is not to finish first and to receive a bunch of glory for how well we did things. The Christian life is about finishing the race. And when we finish the race honorably, and when we finish the race to the glory of God, it doesn't matter what place we're in. All of that cloud of witnesses will rise to their feet and cheer us on when we cross the finish line. I think about that young handicapped athlete that I mentioned earlier. And it's not limited to just happening to people with some disability. There have been instances in the Olympics where a great athlete stumbled and fell. And that great athlete stumbling and falling knowing that lost them the race just didn't finish. There are others that got up and they finished the race. What I'm saying this morning is finish the race. Some of you this morning are on lap number two. Some of you are maybe on your final lap. Many of us are in the latter half. Some are approaching the middle. And the longer you run, the more exhausted you become if you stay focused on you. But when you stay focused on him, he'll be glorified, you'll be rewarded, and the race will be finished well.